Okay, so today I am talking about 100 Baggers by, uh, let's see, who's it by? By Christopher W. Mayer. Um, this, is a, this is a good one. This is a really good one. Uh, I don't know. I've been a little bit uh, not as religious with my Goodreads ratings as, as soon as I finish these audiobooks as I used to be. Uh, I don't think it's, I think it's higher than a four, less than a five, so maybe four and a half. It definitely, uh, meets, uh, Taleb's criteria for, uh, a book is only worth reading if it's worth reading, uh, more than once or worth reading twice. Uh, I definitely think I want to revisit this, uh, but at the same time, Obviously, that's, that seems kind of daunting when there's lots of lots of new books to uh, listen to, and uh, yeah. But I think yeah, probably just go go back through it at, at whatever two and a half times speed or something. Um, but yeah, anyhow, so this attracted me uh, because obviously the name is a hundred baggers stocks that return one hundred to one and how to find them. I think I have not been maybe uh as good at stock investing as i would have liked or as maybe um other my peers just because i'm constantly feeling anxiety that either haven't made enough money or haven't saved enough money and so i always need to uh really have that risk allocation be really high whether that's you know high allocations to Amazon or Tesla back before they really started to hockey stick up or, you know, uh, Bitcoin or gold or things that are just going to absolutely go sky high. So I think also consequently that I haven't been terribly interested in pure, just like quote unquote boring, maybe stock investment books. Uh, let's see, I didn't, uh, I meant that's what I was going to find before I, before I started out, I was going to find another, uh, an actual book, uh, super, super stocks guide to finding, uh, super stocks or something like that. That was, that was an interesting stock book that I actually physically read because, uh, a crypto guy said that it taught him everything he needed to know about the markets. And he was talking about how basically you just buy industries that are the most unloved, like whether that's like uranium stocks and you just look for things that have absolutely cratered <laughs> and that all of the press is, is saying are dead. And then, um, and then they ended up just flying up. And then he also said um, to buy things that, that went down gradually. And that way everybody who needed to get out who wanted to get out, who wasn't, you know, didn't have a strong hand. Um, they had a chance to get out on the, on the way down. And that way, when it did finally go up, it would just shoot straight up because they wouldn't have people that are like, we're trapped and we're trying to sell. So yeah, that, that, that's what I took away from that, that book. And, uh, yeah, uh, DM me if you want the exact title to that. But, um, anyhow, we're talking about, hundred baggers here and yeah I thought it's it was, it was it was great I was a little bit um my enthusiasm was a little bit dampened when he initially talks about oh it's 
it's a hundred to one uh, return over like twenty years. I was like, oh, wah, wah. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. My initial interest faded when he's talking about a ten-year-plus uh, hold period. Um, but then he actually he quickly he quickly uh, pulled up on the stick and, and got my interest back. So basically, his his inspiration for this book was another book called. This book came out in 2015, I think. It's always hard to figure out because there's not a there's not a date in Wikipedia, and the Amazon dates are always weird. Um, but uh, this book based on this book from the 70s called 100 to One in the Stock Market by Thomas Phelps. So yeah, so I'm curious enough. If this book was good enough that I'm curious enough to check that one out. But, but I guess, why was I saying my about my reluctance and my whatever stock investing history and, and different things like that? Because I guess what this does is it, because I guess I've always felt like, oh, well, you know, stocks are priced within an inch of their life and there's no way that I'm going to know enough to, um, I don't have any edge, right? So, you know, whatever, way back when I buy Tesla and, and then immediately, uh, you know, they do a huge uh, new share offering with, in Goldman Sachs, with Goldman Sachs and, and just the price just plunges. And I'm like, okay, it may be a good company, but it's not a good stock. To own. Uh, and so I sold and obviously that's the sad, one of the sadder days of my life, given that it's above 2000 now and my buddy constantly text me to update me on Tesla's price and remind me of all the money I'm not making. Um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so I guess I'm, I've, I've audiobooked every finance book and whatever, you know, from, uh, reminiscences of reminiscings of the stock market operator to like, obviously all the Taleb books. And I put my top finance books, um, up on Instagram. Um, but I kind of carve out the uh, whatever the little green book that beats the markets and, and these other like uh, intelligent investor obviously and, and these other like very stock specific books on their own and, and so that I don't go as deep on as, as the trading and the general finance and the macroeconomics and stuff like that. Um, so but I guess the thing that's interesting about this book is what he's saying is that once you do go into this uh, 10 year hold period, that's how the individual investor can get an edge. Um, just, just by the, by the, you know, by the expanse of time and just by holding on tight. Um, and then I guess his first, his first example of that is, um, well, first, there's a good quote that he has from Mark Twain, uh, which I guess is from Pudd Puddinhead Wilson. And he says, uh, few things are harder to put up with than a good example. I don't know if that's exactly, that's what I have in my notes. Maybe the, maybe the other quote is something better, but I thought that was pretty great. Um, anyhow, so his, his first example is what he calls the coffee can portfolio. And so I found this really compelling. And it's basically the idea that 
I guess in the old days, you buy your stock, you get the certificates, you put them in a coffee can and you whatever, bury the coffee can in the backyard or throw it under the bed or in the attic or whatever and just forget about it. And he's saying that for his, he would do 5,000 uh, on all the buys, all the stocks that you uh, put into the coffee can and, um, and, and, and you never sell anything. And he had, um, he, I guess he had a reader or someone contacted, I don't know whether it's Thomas Phelps or, or it was him, but he said that basically, um, there was a guy that did this and he had a much smaller portfolio than his wife's portfolio when it started out. And, you know, whatever, I forget what it was inherited or her family or basically it sounded like the wife was more sophisticated and, and just had more savings or more money but he did this coffee can portfolio and um when it when it was done after 20 years or 25 years or whatever they came to retire he had one of his stocks was halio which was um eventually got bought out by xerox and turned into Xerox stock, and the $800,000 that he had in Xerox was worth more than his wife's entire portfolio. So that was just a little anecdotal evidence in favor of this coffee can portfolio. Uh, and so I guess the argument against coffee can, the coffee can portfolio, or these long 10, 20 year hold periods is it's like, oh, the market changes. There's new companies that pop up. You know, you're basically, you're gonna be just the idea like, oh, you're just gonna be stuck with a bunch of railroads and insurance funds or something if you'd done this like 30 years ago or something. And what he says is that um, he gives us an example, this Voya fund, I think it's V-O-Y-A, has had no sales in 80 years. <laughs> And basically because of the, the way companies get bought out and things like that, they, you know, they, they actually have shares in Berkshire Hathaway and Foot Locker and, and other companies that are current and more modern um, just because of uh, the way that ownership structures and, and, and things like that. Uh, I forget what he's exactly trying to say here, but he's saying that the life, the average life of companies in the SP, S&P is so much shorter now. And then you also, have, I think this is the argument against it, is so much shorter now that you, if you just buy the S&P index, it's not going to replicate this coffee can portfolio. And then obviously there's tech stocks. Um, but he goes on to say that the, that, that basically the hive mind of the markets has reacted to, has turned, or has reacted, has, an, has anticipated all of the biggest events of the 20th century. And so he's saying that yeah, with regards to World War II, the UK stock market bottomed right before the Battle of Britain. The US market turned up forever just before the US won the Battle of Midway. Uh, the German market peaked at the height of the Russia campaign. And, uh, and so, yeah, that's what he's saying. These are the three great momentum changes of World War II that nobody else saw except for the stock markets, which is quite 
uh, quite interesting. Um, so he says that a 21% annual growth rate gets you to 100x slash 100 bagger in 25 years. Uh, he talks about the five elements of 100 bagger, which are uh, the letters, it doesn't make you spell anything, so I don't know how helpful it is, but SQGLP. The size needs to be small. So, uh, i.e., it would be hard to get a 100 bagger from Apple at this point. Uh, the quality of the business and the management needs to be high. Uh, there needs to be G, there needs to be earnings growth. And then L, there needs to be longevity in both the quality and the earnings growth, growth and the entry price needs to be favorable. Uh, he also talks about um, some of the fastest 100 baggers. Uh, or, yeah, he said, I think he said, uh, no, these aren't the fastest. These are the highest returning stocks, I guess, over like the last, whatever, 40 years or something. And... Um, He says number one is at Berkshire Hathaway with an 18,000% return. And it got to 100 baggers in 19 years. Um, next is Kansas City Southern, which is the only railway in the U.S. that goes north to south. Um, so that should be very interesting. And it would also, it could also. I guess people are always saying that it's interesting, um, and I've been I've been interested in it in a long, long time. Uh, but Airville, uh, but also obviously did not act on it. Um, but yeah, it would be interesting given what Peter Zehan would say about China and how Mexico is going to do so great if uh, if Kansas City Southern is actually underpriced now because since it seems how it is the only it runs to Mexico. But anyhow, sixteen thousand percent return in eighteen years. Altria, I guess is that the, is it they own like whatever, Camel Cigarettes and, and all the cigarette companies maybe. Um, Altria, 15,000% return. Uh, Walmart, and uh, Walmart I guess is one of the faster ones to get to 100 bagger status. It did it in um, 12 years. Uh, so... So yeah, and he goes on, he, he, he just, I guess, and I saw an Amazon reviewer talking about this too. The reason why I liked it is having said, I said about not, you know, having completely mined all the depths of every stock book out there. I felt that he was really covering things. Like after you've audiobooks, so many books, you know, you really, it can be hard up sometimes for actual like new information if you're just sticking to the the top audiobooks because there's a lot of retread in there, especially among the popular business and psychology books and stuff like that. Um, I forget what book I I was looking at recently that was just the absolute worst example of this. Um, what was that? I think I maybe I returned it and I reshuffled. Good Lord, it was just horrible. It was just, it was just, yeah, it was just, it was just all retread. Um, but yeah, this so this guy brings in things that 
that I haven't heard before and, I, and apparently, uh, you know, some others haven't, haven't encountered. So that's hard. He talks about, um, I guess, an example of is it high ROE is one of the crucial things that you need. And he talks about uh, high ROE, ROE companies. Uh, interesting asset manager called Donville Kent uh, with two L's. If you just you can go on their website and, and see their kind of uh, interesting philosophy. He says they own zero companies in the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Um, they have one of 61 companies in the S&P slash Toronto 60 composite ETF. Five of the 1,986 companies in the Russell 2000, four of 500 companies in the S&P, two of 103 companies in the NASDAQ composite. So they really, um, 34 stocks that are not part of any of these major indices. So basically, I guess what they're trying to say is that, you know, they're giving you exposure to um, things that are you know, you're not going to get exposure to with ETFs, which is, is pretty interesting. Their year-to-date return is negative 7.38. One-year return, negative 5%. Five-year return, eek, oof, 0.6%. Yikes. Jesus. Uh, return since inception, 15.5%. Um time-weighted rate of return since October 2008. Net of fees and expenses. So at least I guess it's net net return. Cool. But uh, yeah, that's that's quite interesting. Um, but like I, I wasn't familiar with them. Anyhow, he also mentions highlights. He, um, maybe I should have known this, but I, but I didn't. Um, the, the first phase of Buffett's investing was he, he just bought cheap value stocks with a low PE to price low PE ratio and low price to book and low price to cash flow. And then actually in phase two of his kind of investing career, after he meets Charlie Munger, he he changes completely to low price to future cash flows. I thought that was interesting. They're talking about how would you identify a hundred bagger? Obviously everything is uh, 2020 in hindsight, but it, he gives the example of when Dunkin' Donuts went public and it had a very high return on equity. It had good management, I guess, and it um, it only had 35 locations. And now, I don't know, it had thousands of locations, but you, he's saying that like you could easily look at this and be like, well, 35 locations, you know, that can be, we can expand that and there's, there's room to grow here. And so that would have been a no-brainer. So that's what you're kind of like looking for. Uh, we've already gone through the five elements that you're looking for, but he's basically saying you want a high return on equity for multiple years in a row based on profit margin, not on leverage, which is obviously a lot of companies are just leveraging up today. And then he's saying that's the kind of like the objective part, but then the hard part is actually and who was it? Who was talking about this? Was it Naval Ravikant? Was talking about uh, I forget. Uh, basically, the job of the job of a CEO is just capital allocation. How good of a capital allocator are you? And evaluating the capital allocation skills of the company's management. That's that's the hard part, and that's the part that you're going to need to kind of predict for the future. Uh, 
can't figure who he's talking about here, but I have down. He says that if our return on equity doesn't fall below 20%, then this chap, he just doesn't sell unless the valuation gets really stupid. And then another great key, I think, to take away from this book is that um, prefers owner operators that have skin in the game. Um, they don't, they don't, um, they don't just bet the farm or, you know, shoot, try to shoot the moon and put the whole company at risk. So no home runs, but lots of signals, sing, singles. He talks about uh, the Constellation software, which is on the, I think the Toronto Exchange, which I think that's the, that's the company that I've, I'm actually, I don't know if we're right or wrong, that's the company I'm most interested in investing in because he's kind of talks about how uh, Constellation software is kind of like a Berkshire Hathaway, except for tech. And if you look at this chart, it looks, you know, just like it's an amazing company. It has a very kind of like, not reclusive, but, you know, secretive owner that doesn't, a founder that doesn't seek, that's kind of out of the limelight. And they basically invest in boring tech. And it's like business critical tech. And it's interesting because it, I have a friend who just graduated from LBS and he was saying that they had a guy come in there who was a speaker who was really good and he was talking about, you know, business critical tech, boring, um, boring t uh, tech companies are just the way to go because um, they can basically have, they have huge, they can have huge profit margins and they basically hold their customers hostage because if it's business critical, you know, you just can't operate without their product or the idea that like, if there's a downturn or there's a recession or something like that, it's not an option to like scale back. And so the example he gave was, uh, the company that runs the contactless, uh, credit card processing for the TFL, the tube here in London. Uh, so I thought that was quite interesting and I, I need to follow up, um, but I'm curious if that's a Constellation software company. Um, another group he says here is MTY Food Group. And it's interesting. So since 2015 or whatever, I've, I've, and I was constantly looking up, pulling up the charts of the different companies that he mentioned. And some of them had not performed uh, that well. But obviously, he's, he's you know, looking at a larger time horizon than five years. But um, it was interesting. They weren't all Constellation softwares. There was a, it was kind of a mixed bag. Um, but yeah, that's, that's interesting. Uh, he says, and, and so basically, you, on, the, on the flip side of this um, owner operators with skin in the game, which is the main takeaway here, is uh, I'll, I'll get to that more on that later, I, I think. But he's saying that ETFs bypass these illiquid companies that are controlled by insiders. And so, and and the investment that the, and so basically that's just jacking up, as we all know, with the talking about Tesla joining the S&P 500 and all the ETFs that they're gonna have to buy. As soon as they, as the ETFs get hold of these companies, they have to allocate money to them and so that obviously just jacks up the price so he's saying that whatever it's ironic that the, the better run companies that the insiders want to hold a lot of their company stock are actually cheaper than, than others um 
He gives this Colfax Corporation as an example of an owner-operator company. Um, and so he's saying that, that these companies that actually have publicly traded stock but are effectively more like um, a family office than they are like a Facebook may not be the good, good example, but what with Mark having whatever 51%, but um, they're not as good an example as these other companies that have more diverse ownership. So they're more like, yeah, more like a fine family office than a public traded company. He's saying, why, why is this attractive? He's like, he's saying because billionaires companies outperform the market according to, I forget somebody's analysis. And so he's saying that these family offices and these billionaires, they have all of the same um, kind of like intellectual firepower as, or, or enough of it as say, obviously people in London and New York, I'm sure would, would argue um, with this, but he's saying effectively, they know, their, they know their business, they have the same connections and that they have the same firepower as like a hedge fund. And so basically what you're doing is you're getting kind of like the, the investment management capabilities of a hedge fund, but you're not paying that two and 20. So I thought that was interesting. Apparently there is a fund that bets on billionaires. It's called the Virtus Wealth Fund, uh, spelled like in Latin. Um, I don't know what this, no, I forget. I have to, I can't uh, refer to all my notes, but um, Maybe if you listen to the book, you'll, you'll hear Liberty Media, no mixed tax bill. Forget what I forget what I was talking about there, but uh, hopefully that'll jump out to you if you listen to the book. Uh, there's a professor that has a billionaire's index, Wealth Masters Fund, and he's saying that the, the added performance that billionaires get that other people can't get is because because of their networks, and so basically by investing in these companies you are getting access to their networks, whether that means that whatever they've done business with the same guy for 30 years, obviously, you know, if you invest in Berkshire Hathaway, you know, Buffett can whatever, uh, if they're, you know, I mean, Berkshire might be an interesting, I'm trying to think, I guess it wouldn't be, if there, I guess if, if, there, if there was a crisis, again, you know, like how he, didn't he sweep in and buy a bunch of Bank of America and price, you know, made a, made a ton off that. So like, I guess obviously everyone would want to buy Berkshire if the market crashes, but basically the idea is that um, because of the relationships they built, they have access to these other opportunities or special lending rates or they hear about deals that no one else is going to hear about. Um, whatever, like, I mean, Disney buying LucasArts, nobody even got to bid, else got to bid on it, right? Uh, that's not an example of a billionaire's network, obviously, but, uh, so yeah, so that, that's, that's kind of the thinking there. Um, yeah, uh, so I think this is a reference, I say I have, I have an outsider's Lazar guy, uh, and talking about Trendine, DHR, Colfax, Valiant, NBF, Home Builder. Uh, I think, actually, I think that's NVR. Um, 
it talks about how that's, that home builder is interesting because they they never went in to like Florida and Nevada and all of the markets that really crashed in the housing crisis and um, that they have a lot of cash. So I, I need to I need to Google them and find out, look at their chart again. Then he talks about um, mini Berkshires, which are like MKL, uh, WTM, and Fairfax something FFH. It's on the Toronto Exchange. Um, and and basically the idea is that I don't know if my notes. Yeah, yeah, my notes I have it coming up here. Um, and so they're like mini Berkshires. We'll get to why Berkshire is so attractive. Uh, he also talks about another company, Lucadia National. Um, that was an owner-operated uh, company that was apparently is super interesting. Apparently, it's since gotten bought out by Jefferies, and so you have to whatever. I'm sure Jeff, see if Jeffries has gotten bought out by somebody since 2015. I haven't seen that ticker after a while, but I'm not the right person to ask. Um, he talks about AutoZone being a great stock because it has an incentive plan for management that is perfectly aligned with shareholders. So I think I'll have to pull that up on Google Finance. Um, but yeah, uh, so basically the, this is also one of the highlights of the book, I think which you would think that there wouldn't be anything new to hear about Buffett that I haven't heard about Buffett. Granted, like I said, I haven't, I haven't done any, I haven't audiobooked any books on Buffett. Um, and there's a couple that Charlie Munger book is only available basically on PDF. And I haven't, I haven't read that, but I think that's more as maxims, less as finance stuff. But anyhow, um, it says Berkshire, because of the insurance companies that it owned, had a negative cost of borrowing in 29 out of 47 years at an average leverage amount of 36%. Um, and what do they mean by negative cost of borrowing? It says that they're borrowing at, it wasn't. I don't think it was actually negative, but he's saying that their their average interest rate was 2.2%, and the average treasury bills rate over the same period was 3%, which is just absolutely mind-blowing. And so he says that unlike a normal insurance company, when the risk increased, national indemnity, I think, which is the biggest of his, of his companies, uh, they just didn't add any new business. They just kept their premiums high and didn't worry about trying to attract customers. Um, so yeah, so I thought that was interesting. He talks. He also talks to this guy who, kind of exploring the the billionaire millionaire thing. This guy who likes to just like research the um, kind of like the the barons of financial barons or, or people who made. Uh, a ton of money that aren't the Vanderbilts and uh, the Carnegies. And uh, so he talks about this. This chap talks about this TF Ryan guy who made Metropolitan Traction Company, who was a complete uh, rags to riches story. So that's interesting. And so I guess I'm uh, piggybacking off of this, this idea of. Um, owner operators or billionaire individuals, a lot of those are holding companies. 
and uh, one of those so-called holding companies was, uh, uh, I forget what it turned out to, or the guy's name behind it, but, uh, you know, it turned into Brookfield, right, which is huge. Um, there's some interesting holding companies in, uh, in Sweden. Um, there's a lot of rich families in Sweden, obviously. Um, and, um, oh gosh, I can't think of the name, but anyhow, one of the, 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 like, kind of like, it's not in the U.S., but it's this European, um, clothing company. And so whatever this, this woman, she operates it for the family now. And, uh, you know, whatever they started out in something like boring and, um, but now they have like, they own the biggest owner of Malando or Badondo or obviously I should know this, but but yeah, it's like it's got that orange and and uh, white uh, nameplate. Um, he also talks about how just different different. Uh, there's a, it says Kelly's Heroes. Bet Big is the name of the chapter, um, and uh, it's just talking about which is I never get tired of hearing about the. I forget what it is. Like the, the Kelly method is basically about like risk allocation. It's about bet sizing, and I'm sure you've come across it before if you listen to any finance books. But the good ones seem to include something about this, and just talking about you. You basically you put down your certainty, your degree of certainty, and then, and then that's how you decide how much you're going to allocate to the position. And he talks about some famous people that. Um, that have small small number of positions. This is Bow Post Capital has nine as of this writing of this book had ninety three percent of its funds capital in ten possession positions. Uh, so yeah, so why why diversify away your gains? I guess is the thinking there. Um, but it's interesting. Um, Bow Post had an interesting. I read their Q two letter. Um, which the first part of it was super interesting. Uh, the second part of it was um, really not interesting. It was really pretty horrible talking about just like how this guy, and it, one person had basically written the whole second half, but it was basically um, the kind of an opposite to my entire worldview, talking about that, oh, because um, there's going to be the Fauci effect. <sighs> so, oh my God, so ridiculous saying that people are going to become more trusting and more um interested in what experts have to say because of the Fauci effect because he's been like so right in his track record with this COVID and, or his popularity has just gone up or he's whatever he's he's uh, trending so high I was just like oh, I, I can I can believe it I think you know Bob Post is I guess you know some of the smartest people on the street that that they could actually I mean, you know, yeah, I tend to trust the people who are actually putting their money where their mouth is. But um, anyhow, I was just blown away. It, it sounded like it was. Uh, it sounded like it was just like I don't know. I don't know. It was crazy. Um, but anyhow, uh, he also says Kyle Bass is somebody that has a does a limited number of bets when he believes in what he's doing. Um. Talking about buybacks, accelerating, you know, the climb to 100 bagger status, and he's saying the key is that the companies will capitalize, and the buybacks are coming from earnings, um, and that the company is undervalued by the market. That's the reason why they're buying it back, is because the company's like 
discounting. They have insight into their future cash flows better than anybody and what to discount them at, blah, blah, blah. And so they're like, well, obviously our stock is underpriced, whereas most buybacks now are just like, well, we can get cheap debt, so we should probably just, you know, buy buy back a ton of stock to raise the price because our incentive is based on stock price. Um, and then also the key, so that that's the thing that's that's a, a thing that you want to look at. So somebody, if you could um, email me or, or or DM me on on Twitter, if you know a way to look at the shares outstanding a chart to, of what uh, how you graph the shares outstanding so i can't log into bloomberg because um i don't have one of those remote whatever remote access key cards because i'm not it's real estate we're not that dependent on bloomberg but we have a terminal so i i guess i will check on bloomberg once i get back into the office at some point um but maybe maybe that Maybe that's the way to look at it, but I can't, um, I can only see the kind of like balance sheet figure as of today, what the outstanding shares outstanding or what the float is. Um, but he's saying that basically, even if the company is doing tons of buybacks, the float actually isn't going down because there's so many options that are beginning to, um, to management or all the different tiers of management to attract employees. So I was like, well, that's pretty crazy. Um, so basically, you want to screen for companies that have a declining float and not crazy debt. And I forget if he's talking about Buffett here or something, but I think Buffett, it was Buffett that said, you pay more for something durable. Um, if that was whatever, if a car was going to run for 10 years instead of five years, you'd pay more for it. Uh, and it's the same with a, a company that has a, a moat that it can defend. Uh, pardon the drilling in the background. I don't know if that's coming through or not, but um, he talks about interactive brokers, um, which I used to use, but I just wasn't active enough, and so I wasn't interested in paying the paying the price. And um, maybe I didn't have a, a minimum balance that was high enough to avoid the, the monthly fee either. Um, so if you're an interactive brokers client and you're yelling at me that there was no fee well, it was because I was my balance was not high enough um, some industries are quieter and better for the long holds that that this hundred bagger philosophy needs so saying looking at like beverage companies versus tech that said I think he does he talks about how and everyone I guess knows this uh, that's in the industry it was just seems sad and, and a little bit horrible, but like monster energy drink. It was Hanson's energy drink. Um, they bought that and then they just, they tried different strategies and, it, and obviously monster energy drink has been the best performing stock in, in whatever in the U S markets in the last X, how many ever years, 10 years or something like that. So you might look at that and be like, Oh, well, how can you get big returns in beverages? Uh, you have to go into tech, but that would be a, a good example. Um, Oh, you know what? I think if you remember me struggling in buy, then build, it was because I was um, I was crossing these two crossing these two books, my notes. So he says here, it's easier to fix a low operating margin than it is to fix a low gross margin. Um, 
So basically look for uh, a high gross margin and a low operating margin for good buys. And I, so the thinking there is that um, is that it's easier to cut costs and try to find the little uh, 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 cost savings and whatever silly little expenses that are hiding in the operate that are dragging the, the operating margin down than it is to just steal somebody else's clients and jack up the sales figures. So I'll, I'll just say that it's easier to fix a low operating margin than it is to fix a low gross margin. So look for high gross margin. And so a high, company with a high gross margin that's still being held back by a low operating margin could be a good buy. It'd be interesting to hear someone else's perspective on that. Uh, he also talks about the thing that's working against the average investor, which is definitely, I can raise my hand for this. Uh, they overtrade because they're bored. Um, and uh, yeah, so most most mutual fund investors actually underperform their mutual fund <laughs> that they've invested in because they uh, they uh, sell when it's high and uh, or sell when it's low and buy when it's high. Um. Oh gosh. Okay, I think I'm gonna have to go. Let me see what if I can just go straight to this bookmark. This is probably gonna mess everything up. Um, and it will not make for good audio, but let me just got to try it sometime. I have down here in my notes, money dick quote. Okay, so um, I tried to listen to the Moby Dick quote on Audible, and it, it did kill my anchor recording, which actually maybe will be for the best, because then I won't get cut off at the hour mark as it, as it normally does. Um, but anyhow, and, and I also gave me time to look up the Moby Dick quote. It says, um, he's talking about, I guess, frauds and shaky tech companies and um, things that maybe you, once you're invested in them, it's, it's too late because he says that the quote from Moby Dick is, but when a man suspects any wrong, it sometimes happens that if he be already involved in the matter, he insensibly strives to cover up his suspicions, even from himself. And much this way it was with me. I said nothing and tried to think nothing. <laughs> oh, gosh. That's why Moby Dick is. Oh, Moby Dick's great. I need to, I need to reread that. Um, if, you, if, you ha if you haven't read it, um, really uh, give it a try. Jump in. It's got, I, I think it's one of the classic uh, longish reads that are not actually overrated. I, I would have never done it. I, I was it was kind of avoiding it, but I had a uh, a friend who I'm always dying to read books at the same time as people. And my Dutch friend, he he suggested that, and I tried to talk him out of it. But then um, I ended up finishing it, and I think liking it even more than he did. But he, he liked it too. So anyhow, can't recommend. Can't. I, I know the the train the train is loaded down, but uh, yeah. Uh, there's room for more on the Moby Dick hype train. Uh, Okie doke. Uh, so let's see. I didn't actually lose that much that much audio, even though I plowed on uh, past the Moby Dick quote. 
Let's see where where am I at? Do, 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 do. Okay, yeah. So muddy waters uh, is the is the short uh, hedge fund that shorts. This is primarily short, run by Carson Block. He's su super interesting guy. Uh, they introduce him here by saying he's the guy that took down Sino Forest. Um, so Sino Forest, I guess, was a Chinese company, and I think it was the biggest company. Um, I don't know if that was paper or something, but it was the big. I think it was the biggest example of out-and-out -out Chinese fraud before this. Um, what was it Lucky Coffee or something like that? Um, but yeah, and so he talks about and so John Paulson, who, who I've always. I really, I don't know, I've never heard, I never heard the, whatever, the, the, the other side of the story, but I, I, I think John Paulson is by far my least favorite, um, whatever, hedge guy, I need to listen, I need to, there's a, there's a good podcast, um, Grub Stakers, I don't know, actually, I don't know how good it is, but I've, I've listened to a couple episodes, it's interesting, they basically, they're, they're a bunch of, like, Bernie bros, and they think that all, every millionaire is corrupt and horrible and needs to die immediately, so I need to listen to the episode about um, uh, John Paulson, the Bill Ackman episode was, was pretty damning, and I listened to the episodes on the Koch brothers, um, which actually I, I didn't find it as as as, as horrible as uh, I I mean it was horrible with it with regards to the environment and things like that but um and, and there's things there but uh, they tried to pen some other stuff on them which I didn't think was fair anyhow John Paulson he lost seven hundred and he made personally made a billion uh, doing the quote unquote big short but he lost I guess either his probably his fund probably not him lost seven hundred million on the sign of forest fraud that this Carson Block chap uh, was the was was leading the charge on. Um, so Carson Block says not to read the the conference call transcripts just or it says to read them not to listen to the actual audio because you need to avoid being charmed by the management, which is just crazy, you know, because he obviously you think he's this hardened short seller that he, there's no chance he'd be charmed by management. But I can definitely see if, um, uh, you know, Elon Musk with his South African lilt uh, coming in there and just also the, the confidence, you know, when Elon is talking, I can definitely see you be charmed by that. Not that you need to be shorting Tesla. I, I, would, I would say, I would say, um, Definitely don't, but um, I, that could carry over for other management conference calls. Cause I have I have read transcripts of the conference calls and like, oh Jesus, Elon, that sounds bad, you know. But if I'd been listening to them, I think it would have been something different. Uh, so yeah, Carson Block says market research is strictly created to back up management I, management's ideas and what they already wanted to do which yeah i mean i couldn't agree with more um this is this is uh this is super interesting i think this is a big a big point uh uh and i think if you google this you can find different blog posts articles talking about this um and so everyone's talking about inflation like now with all this money printing we might actually get some inflation we might not according to jim bianco but we, but but if this doesn't do it then nothing will um 
but he says that Buffett would says that the best inflation protection is found in companies with low tangible assets. So normally people think like, oh, gold mines, oil stocks, those are great hedges against inflation. But he's saying that basically those companies, they have to pay the inflated price to replace and update all these heavy assets they have, where as a low um, low asset. Uh, company like his I have down Axis candy. I, I don't know if that's right, but he you know he's famous for owning this little candy um company. Uh it just increases its price. Um I mean I guess you know sugar goes up and the ingredients go up but like it can just completely um counteract that because it just increases its price and it's a small percentage of people's incomes. So the bite just isn't there. Um the author goes on to talk a lot about old John Maynard Keynes, and um, I think compared to economists now, he, he talks about how John Maynard Keynes like was a really savvy investor and really made some some uh, cool moves. Um, I also have a note here says some really good Benjamin Graham anecdotes, which I didn't actually write down and don't have for you, but you can enjoy those if. Uh, if, if you audiobook it, which I definitely recommend doing, uh, GFN Container Company. Uh, this is a company that makes, like, I think, like, all of, like, the mobile homes and the beds and basically all the stuff that's needed for uh, quickly setting up shale drilling operations and, because I make kind of, like, make, like, uh, not, like, gold mining towns, but uh, things like that. And I have uh, Interactive Brokers listed here again. Um, actually, I mean, I think they, I think they somehow got got themselves caught on the wrong side of a, a derivative deal or something, um, and 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 lost a lot of money. But uh, he's basically saying they have a good moat, so I'm going to keep and because I've used their platform and, and keep an eye on them. It might be a long, good long term bet. Uh, he talks about the peg ratio, which is a Price to earnings ratio over earnings growth rate. I guess that's uh, essential for your hundred baggers. I kind of forget why I need to re-listen to it again. Um, uh, he talks about you know some people say oh you know it depends on where you where you start in your hundred bagger journey. Um, yada yada yada, and. He says, well, actually, 1966 to 1988 is normally considered a dead zone for stocks. And obviously, um, inflation was incredibly high. He's, but he's saying that uh, during that time, there was 187 stocks that eventually got to 100-bagger status. Uh, Southwest Airlines did it in 10 years. Uh, all, all the slick... Uh, Wexler, uh, his uh, L brand did it in eight years, and um, H&R Block did it in under 20 years. That's quite interesting, you know, I mean, that's H&R Block, geez, that's a, you'd think that would be kind of a boring play, even for the 60s to the 80s, but I guess maybe they they just really herded the cats needed to make money uh, doing people's taxes on a industrial scale um yeah and so that's all i have um can't think of anything else to say uh
except, um, yeah, I, I hope I've talked you into giving this one a try. And, um, yeah, that's it. Cool. All right. Thanks. Talk to you later. Bye.